Good afternoon, guys and girls. Welcome to the Garage Athlete Show with myself and Daniel Fraser. We are joined this afternoon by Russell. Um, as Dan knows Russell a little bit better, I'm going to pass it over to him to introduce him a little bit more. And yep, over to you, Dan. Hey guys. So as I guess today we've got Russell Taylor. He's a bit of a I don't know, I'd say you're almost like a bit of an enigma in the uh, fitness industry. You kind of, you seem like you've been around for quite a while, but I think I kind of stumbled upon you, but I think a couple of years ago, maybe, I think it was just over Facebook, some of what you're posting, and you're kind of one of those guys when you're posting, it's kind of like, uh-huh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, all right, okay, but on a kind of a, a nice level, but you kind of do a bit of, of all sorts. You've done a bit of um, bodybuilding coaching, you know, a lot of fat loss, a lot of um, powerlifting, which you've been quite successful at. Um, you know, I've got some sick t-shirts, which you've made as well, you know, becoming a whiskey extraordinaire as well. But, you know, if you kind of, I think you're quite knowledgeable on quite a lot of things as well. So I think it'd be great for the listeners to have, a, a, you know, get to know you a bit better. So would you mind just introducing yourself, Russell? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Russell Taylor, as you, as you already introduced. Um, I don't really like blowing my own trumpet, but I suppose you could say um, bodybuilding-wise, I've had several natural athletes all go pro with me. I've also uh, I've, I've had untested athletes win all overalls. And personally, myself, I have won. Uh, oh, I have won and competed at an international level in powerlifting. What's your training, uh, um, Fred? What's your best lift? Um, best lift at around about ninety kilos. Squats about five hundred ninety-five pound. Uh, deadlift is 615 and bench is around about 352. Like so, for the British guys with kilos, what, what does that work out to? Uh, 270 kilos squat without wraps or sleeves. Um, bench is 160-162 and deadlift is around about 280-282. Something like that. Yeah, so some pretty big numbers for an under, all under 90 as well. Yeah, 90 kilo class. I've done some of those at 82 as well, but you know, so it's a bit numbers there. So yeah, some good stuff. So I'm looking forward to the training. Um, so uh, yes, so you're a big deal in power. Well, not big deal. You've done quite a lot in powerlifting as well, and then um, just a lot of programming. Do you work with a lot of powerlifters? Uh, general fat loss, or um, I suppose not really. I mean, I, I think I normally deal with more like hybrid athletes. So most of my actual clients are probably actually bodybuilding clients, but also want to be strong at the same time. So I sort of like balance both those out and try and like dispel some of the myths between bodybuilding uh, programs and actual powerlifting programs and how to actually do it. Everyone seems to be on the impression that it's really hard to do both. Maybe it's not like 100%, but you can certainly do 95%. You could probably do both of them, no problem at all. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a shame um, that, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in one of your coaching groups and I uh, get hold of an uh, absolute ton of wealth of information and they're you know I'm trying strongly to keep up with it but you've got some great examples um there's particularly a client of yours who's had some amazing success bodybuilding and both powerlifting so with your programming what are you looking to do to build that kind of you know well, jacked and tanned hybrid athlete you know as strong as you look not just your typical blob associated with uh, powerlifting or a weak bodybuilder per se as well um, where do you start on that one? I mean, you've read the group, so there's a lot of information to go through. Oh, on absolute wealth of information. So just, you know, whatever comes to your head and we can sort of delve through it as we talk. Because I know I think Don will be quite interested in this because he's a natural bodybuilder himself. Well, I think you need to just boil it back to what makes someone grow and what's the most optimal way of looking at things. Like, for instance, if you're dealing with a hybrid athlete, you might be doing heavy fives, but you'll never be really be doing heavy threes or heavy, heavy ones unless you're testing. Because obviously your goal is actually, um, will actually be growth rather than actual power. But you need to blame that with some 
high rep stuff, but you see that quite a lot in actual other programs as well, like Westside and stuff like that as well. So there's countless of bodybuilders over the years that have squatted. So why can't they, why can't an actual bodybuilder squat, which they do, most of them do, you know, so. And obviously trying to balance that with actual fatigue is the issue. So I try and blend reps and uh, percentages so, so they can still hit the most amount of actual sets per week possible to bring in the most amount of growth and not try and not try and hinder the growth by doing too many actual build of the actual low rep stuff. Mm. I think you seem quite, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but almost like a volume guy. You're quite keen on pushing guys. You know, I've seen some of your training and some of the sets and reps and the percentage you do are right up there. So I mean, what's your thought process behind that? How do you prepare a lifter to handle such um, high, you know, not necessarily repetitions, but sets with a high, uh, you know, high volume, high frequency at the same time? Can I ask, what would you actually consider actually high volume? I mean, it seems to be quite a debated subject. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of powerlifting, you know, if we're talking, you know, sets of squats per week, what are we looking at? Sorry. So probably around, you know, 20 sets, 15 plus sets or so, maybe 20, but we're talking around, you know, maybe the 80% pluses, I think. And I, I know you talk a lot about um, maybe capping things when the form starts to deteriorate, but trying to get as much work in as you can on that little sort of line before it starts breaking down. Yeah, I suppose I could speak about a little bit of the, uh, the philosophy, how I came to these numbers, really. But um, normally, because I, I train in the home gym, obviously. So I haven't, my squats, even though I've hit 20 sets of squats a week in the past, if I was actually in a gym, that might only actually be 10 sets of squats maximum. And if I'm dealing with a new athlete that's an intermediate, that actually may only be seven probably seven sets of squats that are heavy. Yeah. And then it'll probably run around about seven sets of squats that are actually reasonably light. And I mean reasonably light around about 65 to 70%, which is still going to add to your one RM. But obviously it's a lot more, you know, eight to 12 bodybuilding sort of training as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So I came to the numbers because normally there was, um, as you might know, there's like a couple of GVT studies. And basically, if you know what GVT is, it's basically a 10 by 10. Yeah. And there was uh, the study in, interestingly, was one in women and there was one in men, because obviously people think that women can do more, which they can. But what, both of the studies sort of came to the conclusion that um, that five sets actually gave more growth than 10 sets did, which was, you know, but there were 10 sets to failure. So I was like to myself, well, that's per session. So once a week. So how do I, how do I try and get somewhere in between on that? So I thought, well, if nine probably gives you about the same growth as five. So then I thought, then I went, well, the ideal's probably going to have to be around about eight, I would have thought. So I sort of, so I sort of lived with clients around about the seven, six to eight compounds per, per movement. And that's how I sort of came to them sort of numbers. And then obviously, time, time, you times that twice by week, then you sort of are on the actual, you know, between 14 and, you know, 18, uh, 16 sets, you know? Yeah. So in effect, by just being a bit more frequent, you've kind of increased your volume or made it the same, but perhaps you can work with um, greater efficiency in a higher percentage, maybe? Yeah, well, that's that's the idea. The idea is, well, the, like I said before, the study there said there was a lot of junk, junk volume coming after eight sets anyway. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're doing more frequency, generally speaking, you know, your form's a little bit more tighter because you, it's easier to do, you know, four or five sets of really heavy stuff than, you know, do 10 sets of heavy stuff. Yeah. Because at some point, you're going to you're gonna log, you're gonna log bad, bad reps, and especially if you're squatting over 500 pounds or 227 kilos, one rep, could, one rep could actually just, you know, end your year, so... Yeah, I'll absolutely. So, I mean, like, how important is rep? How important is rep quality then? I mean, obviously, important, but like, how important is it in terms of getting some good growth? Like, is it? Do you need to go, you know, 
gun to your head every set or is it more about how well you do the movement? Yeah, well, for me, I, um, I always program to, uh, my RPs are based on actual uh, uh, rep quality rather than actual complete failure. So mm -hmm. I, would, I would define RPE as an actual uh, RPE 10 would be the most reps I could do that are around about up to 95% technically correct. Okay. So okay. yeah, that but some people quite a big difference for us and lifters, right? You know, if they're in the mindset of absolute failure, we're talking quite different in terms of reps they can actually do properly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but as you get like through, because I don't deal with anyone that's a beginner. So once you start dealing with the more advanced athlete, they normally are good because if you did more, they would end up injured anyway. So I would treat a set more as in it would be five sets of singles. Mm -hmm. So you know, you you do your rep have a think, breath, do another rep, rather than actually thinking at five. But if you do see like three good ones, two, uh, two bad ones, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's nearly half your actual work that's actually poor. Mm. So why ingrain poor technique when you could have 100% good technique? You know what I mean? So what, what, is, what is the goal on that? Because at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing for bodybuilders and powerlifters is the fact that actually getting to the meets is the biggest thing than actually, you know, getting that extra 5%. Because you see everyone come through all injured and all oh, my back, you know, two weeks ago I squatted this and I would have won. Yeah. But, you know, th that isn't two weeks ago. It's now and you can't do it because you're injured. So That's an interesting point that you've had there that so are all your athletes programmed to technical failure then? So you're not going to all the way to concentric failure. It's, it's to technical breakdown. It's to, yes, definitely to technical breakdown. Breakdown. But the issue is with the actual whole conversation is some studies do it to technical breakdown and some do it to failure. And so like when you look at the actual research, it's very hard to when someone says do RPE, what exactly did they mean? Because there's no, for me, clean definition of actually what that actually is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, that's as many reps as you can do that are quality towards failure without failing. But if someone's a really advanced athlete, they probably could get towards, you know, RPE, technical failure and actual Real failure could be actually uh, very, very close to each other anyway, so it might not actually matter. But for to a new lifter, you're probably going to have to push them to technical failure because they think failure normally in, in studies, they normally, when screamed at, get another five reps. So that's, wow. yeah, so, so that's the interesting yeah, thing. Right. Do you think that could be part of the almost distancing between what the research is saying and what actually happens when you're in the trenches working with clients and why there is that kind of discrepancy. Obviously for most trainers kind of like looking at research is always good, but a good trainer also needs to take what is said in the research and then apply it to real people as well. Because as you said, there's that discrepancy between not having like a set standard. So if somebody's saying, right, I've done this research and it's done to RPE 8 or whatever it is, but then what you're taking clients to being RPE 8, they could be two different things. Exactly. So that's why I like to use like uh, less subjective actual methods. So if I get a video back and I, it doesn't apply to every single sort of athlete, but if I see a set to failure and I notice that there is a bar slowdown at 8, then as they get stronger, you can always eye up that bar slow down. And if it's flying up there, chances are, that, you know, you can sort of guesstimate that there's another two or three in there. But obviously, if they're not pushing themselves, they're like, oh, that's has to be done. Put, put it straight on back on the actual rack then. Was it, was it really done? You know what I mean? So That's probably the, uh, the coaching eye coming into it a bit there, isn't it? And that's where experience comes into it. That's almost yeah, like I mean, the classic. Sorry, you're saying, Chris. 
I mean, there's also like, you know, you could buy stuff like, you know, like um, what they call Tinder units and stuff like that. But obviously you're not about big money at that point. But, you know, you can sort of profile people and that sort of thing. But most people are kind of, I'll be reading the studies and then saying, yeah, the, the abstract says RPE8, that's the one. But they don't really know what a natural rule RPE is. You know what I mean? I've seen guys grind like, you know, the three or four reps and is your RPE8 the same as my RPE8? Because anything over 200 kilograms for me feels almost the same. Yeah. So like, yeah, I want I want to craft a, I want to create off a one rep at five hundred, but somehow I managed to squeeze another four or five out, and it's like, well, it, are you training as hard as I am? When I say to you RP eight, there needs to be some sort of feedback there between the coach and the actual client to actually make sure you're all actually on the same wavelength. But there's actually clients that take that take that actually even further and actually go past RPE, as in like you see them and they will like they will take five six breaths on the last rep and get another one. And then they take another five, six reps, and then they'll get another one. And suddenly they're not doing sets, they're doing cluster sets. Yeah, deadlift comes to mind on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah squats as well. You see, you, you see them pause at the top for, for a minute, and you go, well, and you go, and every single rep is really, really, really slow. And you're like, well, it's not really what I asked for. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. I think, it, I think sometimes, even with the newer lifters, you kind of have to. You know, it must be the absolute bro or, you know, do your power lifting motivation squat and go as far to the deep end as you can actually find out where that is. But then you sort of really start to learn about yourself. And I think sometimes it's a it's a confidence and a trust in the process to know that, OK, well, maybe I don't have to be absolutely, you know, gun to my head every set, you know, you know, sacrifice my spine to get the next um, level up. And it might be, you know, a lifter that comes to mind is like, you know, I think is it Bryce Lewis, the American guy, 105? Mm -hmm. Like you watch him in his sets. You think he hasn't he hasn't tried, and this is a world record holy and just just got yeah. a three thirty, but in training it never looks like it slows down. And you, you know, if you think about rep quality, it's just like, oh it, to me it's the standard. And it's hard, you know, I look you know, look back at my training, my clients' training as well. I'm like, God, you know, it's it's, it's a real like I haven't got that quality. I'm pushing I'm pushing too hard. Okay, so where does it come back? Do you sort of bring the um you know, you're not going quite as far, is it just a more sets kind of thing? Or do you know, okay, well I've stimulated enough this day and I move on? It's it, it's kind of that like you know, sweet spot, I suppose. I mean, the thing with Bryce is, um, and I mean, I've, I've seen Bryce before and I've done a bit of work with him and stuff like that, not, not coaching or anything like that, but um, he's a very explosive lifter and so he's like Ray Williams. And for him, you'll think that he's grinding and he'll go, well, he's got another four left, but he'll do one, <laughs> fail instantly. But uh, his, yeah. his, yeah, his form's that ingrained and he's probably a lot, you know, like type two or whatever, fiber dominant that he's a very explosive lifter. So you've got to keep an eye out for that sort of thing. So, so his actual RPE and his technical breakdown are, are virtually on point. So for someone like him, you can't, you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to actually coach him like, like a normal client because he's far beyond me and most of the people out there. And people aren't going to realize, I think he's slacking. But then again, this is what I'm on about, about subjective terms. Really, when you're doing all these sets and stuff, if you've got a test, that should be the actual... That should be the actual guideline if your actual training is working. Mm. Oh, do I need another eight sets? No, but, well, if you get the PR on your next PR, then you did the right amount. Mm. But if you didn't get it, then maybe you did more need more sets. And if you didn't get it, maybe less sets. You know what I mean? So, how how far would you recommending uh, sort of testing? Well, I think it depends on the person. I think, like for instance, like it depends on the actual training agent how how often they can actually test. So, like you'll get a novice, and the old like sort and strength was three times a week, but that's fine for them. But that only lasts like four or five weeks. And then they seem to go into like weekly programs like the Texas Method and stuff like that, like most bodybuilding sort of stuff. And the, 
but how, are you really going to make 52 PRs in a year? You know what I mean? I mean, if it was, if it was, you know, if it was, if it was kilos, it'd be 52 kilos, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? So it's be double that. So I start to like, when I get a client, then I start to like, um, find the middle ground because you, there seems to be a weird uh, disconnect between actual uh, testing. Like for instance, there's not many routines out there that test twice a week. I mean, tw sorry, twice, no, once every two weeks. The, but it always seems to go straight to monthly. So why, why, is, why is like once every two weeks not a thing? Why not once every three weeks? Why not once every four weeks, then five weeks, then, and see how many you can make. But I think a lot of people, when they go to that sort of level, they stop switching movements out there to give themselves different PRs so they don't have to, you know, they don't have to PR the actual same lift. And then it looks like they PR and all the time, but really they're sort of like realization, like the same sort of lift pattern, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think in terms yep. of, so I know with like powerlifting, as you said, that you're doing testing anywhere from weekly to monthly to, so do you find that with like novice slash intermediate lifters, there's almost that psychological thing, oh, right, well, I want to test myself, but then they almost get into the habit of testing their strength rather than training their strength. Yeah, I mean, that's the massive issue I've run in all the time. What was it? Testing strength versus, no, was it a building strength versus demonstrating strength? Yeah. I mean, they always seem to do that. For me, like a one RM test could be a test, I'm sorry, another actual set that could go towards growth building that one RM. So what would you rather do? I mean, there is an argument for some of the new powerlifters that actually do a single up to an RPE7 or an RPE8 or like a 90% as sport-specific practice. But as a bodybuilder, do you really need that, you know? So my test at the moment on Dan's program, for instance, is a four rep max, which is normally around like a powerlifting opener. But I know for a fact that four reps, he's going to get some growth from that set and all the fives before that. And obviously eights on the, on the other side of the week as well, you know? So it's definitely a massive issue, but I don't think it's necessarily a novice issue because if you look at like Westside, there's a reason why Louis Simmons isn't letting the max out every single week on different lists because they're that aggressive and they're that competitive there in Westside. They're going to do it anyway. So, how, so if they're going to do it anyway, how am I going to make this program? They're going to do it anyway, but not actually get them injured. So they actually get to the platform. I know what I'll do. I'll give them eight PRs of eight different moves. And then they, 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 obviously they can strike each other's ego and keep themselves fresh and then sort of yeah. back them back in. But that's, that's one of the genius things that in Westside people don't actually think about. They think, well, the, well, the one max training is, is all about keeping strength which it is but it's also about keeping these lifters healthy as well getting them all mini prs because they're all very very competitive athletes you know so it's selling them what they want but giving them what they need yeah so you, you basically like like i said the most important thing is actually getting there in the first place not injured but if you look at the old the old school westside guys they're all injured and special bits all the newer guys can do a lot more healthy so he's gone, well, I'll do, I'll do three movements so i'll do four movements i'll do five minutes so once you've done like eight movements that means you only get back to your main lift if you put if, if you put your main lift once every eight weeks, so you only really pee on that, that lift. And what people don't realize as well, there's probably a detraining aspect to that as well. Because I don't know about you, but if I do, say, for instance, a front squat or a, um, I don't know, a low bar squat, if I did it, and I went back to my actual competition lift, it would take me a couple of weeks to dial it back in to my maximum output. Mm. So really, them guys doing 100% there, it's 100% for them then the day, but their body is probably capable of doing another five to ten percent more than that so really they are doing rpa nines and eights but in the head they are doing tens because it's the most they've got but really their body's capable of more, yeah, you know? yeah i mean I, I, i've noticed recently i think they've even changed their speed work to include a bit more volume recently i think 
Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, they're, they're speed now. I think they've started, like you said, I think they've started going towards yeah, five. Like almost like five miles. Um, yeah, so I'm like, well, and you go, well, it's really like speed work again. But then you, then you start looking at their band tension. And then you go, you know, like 50%. I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but I'll just, you know, I'll just make this up. But like, see if it was 50%, they've started using like 20% band tension, 25% band tension. And then you're going, well, a five by five at 75%, 80% is starting to look like traditional training. Mm. And you, you know what I mean? So it is obviously, it is obviously going to start making their guys grow a lot bigger because maybe it'd be easier at the bottom, but the actual RMs are starting to look like normal RMs in most routines now, you know what I mean? So Yeah, so this is where I, this is where I get, I, I love this kind of bit because it's kind of, <clears throat> are they getting stronger and better because they're increasing the volume or are they getting stronger and better because of the assistance or is it a combination of the two? Because, you know, some guys swear by, I, I hit this banded squat and it absolutely smashed it. Would they have got the same results if they just did more volume or is it helping potential injury by using bands or, you know, where, where does it lie? Well, I think, obviously, you know, specificity is king for me. I'm not, I should disclaim this and say I'm not a massive West Side fan, so I get a lot of critique for this, but I like to look into see why he's getting such good results. Have you just moved to your, hang on, is it to your right a little bit? There's a little guy looking over your shoulder over there, which I think explains some of your mythology. There he is. Here he is. <laughs> oh, well, little Boris. Friend, friend Boris, sir. Yeah, little Boris. Obviously quite, you know, quite different, a big volume, but, you know, but he's, I'm sort of, you know, so, so I'm getting away from it. We're talking about chains and stuff. So you were saying, mate. Uh, on the chains and bands, I think, well, obviously, I, most people's sticking point for me is that normally on the bottom of the list, so you, you sort of miss that aspect of it. Like you said there before with the, and what you touched on earlier on about injury and stuff, if the guy is going to max out anyway, why not max it out on a, on a lift that's, you know, that you're actually rotating and making it semi-safe, if you know what I'm saying. So, plus the guys are, I mean, they hate it when I say this, but a lot of these guys are in suits. But in a suit, you're obviously going to get a lot more rebound from wearing an actual powerlifting suit and a set of wraps. And at the top, it's going to be a little bit harder for them, generally speaking. So putting all the tension on, on the top for them might actually be more specific than actually doing one without actually bands on at all, especially if they're not actually wearing a suit at the time, you know? Mm, yeah, no, it's quite different. I mean, it's, it's suited lifting, all those things. I just, I just choose to stay out because I have no idea. I've never used it. I haven't even, I've only used wraps once either, so I try not to go too more on that kind of side of things. But it must, it must create some differences, the way you squat in it and things like that. I've seen guys train completely differently in suits. Yes, yeah, massive. I mean, there's a massive amount of difference. I mean, when you look at them guys there, they don't normally miss off the bottom, they normally miss off the top straight away. Yeah. And then some, some of the guys are 300, 400 pound light, uh, lifting less weight when they haven't got a suit on. I mean, there is a different, complete different set of skill to it. So you have to learn that gear. You've got to pay for all that gear. Then a lot of them are cutting it towards their, what they preferred. It's basically, it's going to be like several years investment and it's going to be, you know, a considerable amount of money. Amount of money. That's why I think, generally speaking, raw is the way forward. Well, not necessarily the way forward, but why it's expanding so quickly because it's an easy entry level. You just need, you know, your belt and, you know, you don't even need a set of squat shoes. You can just turn up on the actual day and do what you have to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So going back to kind of like chains and bands, etc., because I've seen a big shift in bodybuilding across to using like chains and bands and one, people not setting them up right because they don't quite understand um, the mechanics behind why you're using bands and chains. And then two, throwing chains and bands in before they kind of need it. So you're seeing somebody with maybe, they can't even squat 100 kilos and they're throwing bands and doing band-assisted squats, whereas actually they could probably just do with 
getting stronger at kind of doing squatting movements or same with like uh, leg presses or hack squats or things like that. So when do you think would be like a good time to introduce the like bands and chains or do you think it's something that's just like a bit of a fad at the moment because people see it and it makes a good Instagram video? I mean, I don't think there's actually a strong argument to actually have a bodybuilder to do bands and chains at all, to be honest with you. I don't personally actually program them because not many people have access to them. I've tried them myself, but I've got chains here, but I hardly ever use them. I can understand the idea behind them. But for me, I think it's going to be more of a case of variation. Um, if, it, if it keeps the actual lifter more invested into their routine, makes them less bored, you know, it's not going to hurt them putting some chains on, on, on a bar and getting them to do it as a thingy. But as far as actual magic is concerned, I haven't seen a very compelling argument from a bodybuilder. And even then, a lot of powerlifters, I mean, there's lots of guys squatting large amounts of weights, aren't using bands and chains as well. I'm sure there's both ways to doing that. And maybe there might be a little bit less injury risk, actually, if they actually vary it up. But you see, who's to say like a, I don't know, a, a squat without an actual pair of squat shoes on isn't the actual variation, you know what I mean? Or a slightly, a slightly wider stance or, you know, going from high bar to low bar. There's lots of ways to put variation in the actual routine. Doesn't necessarily have to be a set of bands and chains. I just think it's, it's you know, it makes nice Instagram videos as well. Let's face it. I mean, that's not a dog on Westside. I mean, Westside obviously being powerlifters is a little bit different there, especially with the gear and stuff like that. Mm. So I can see the argument in there. But as for like bodybuilding and stuff, I just see it as another way of just keeping the actual maybe lifter fresh. You know? Yeah. Okay. Got me thinking about uh, I think it's Mike Rizzatel and Chad Smith talk about that a lot. Just tiny little, you know, tiny little nuances change it like high to low feet slightly different belt on belt off you know little tiny things that, but they're still variations you know and they're still they're very specific to you know let's say if we're talking about competition squat you know they're just very small changes but in terms of um do you know if it's uh what, i don't know what specific it's you know it sounds like it really is instead of putting tons of different things on the bar hey? yeah i mean I mean, I should mention Westside does actually, they do actually incorporate a repetition method as well. So they do actually do lots of volumes after the actual main work as well. Oh yeah, tons so, of Yeah, so you know, it's not just the speed work that's changed as well. I'm sure that helps as well. But like you said there before, we touched that earlier on about the actual, um, about the PRs. If you give guy, you know, like a, like you say, a pause squat, a tempo squat, a high bar, low bar, you, that's four variations there. If you max one of those out every single week, you're not actually going to actually max out the actual one movement you have until every month. So there may be accountability wise, you're giving your actual client easy wins and he's thinking the program's working, which will make him work harder and which, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know what I mean? Interesting. So I guess my, my next question is uh, bodybuilding terms. I mean, how, how important is the pump? And then my next question would be, can you go into a bit more detail about myo reps, which would be, I think, interesting to a lot of the listeners? Well, I mean, there's a lot of actual um, mechanisms to actual muscle growth. And obviously, the guys that do the pump chasing are normally looking for the actual, um, you know, like the cellular swelling and stuff like that, which is an indicator. Uh, the biggest sexual factor seems to be tension. So that's why you don't really see a lot of difference between six, seven reps between that and 20 reps. So, yeah, it does work. And it's probably a little bit easier on the actual CNS system. Well, that's another argument as well. I, I, I personally find like 20 rep squats a lot harder on the CNS system than a four rep max squat, you know? So, because I'm, I'm, I'm virtually sick on a, on a, on a 20 rep. Like, you know. Widowmaker, they call it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Widowmaker squats. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've really watched it <laughs> one then. Damn, I, just, I, I, yeah. 
Yeah, I a couple of times. No. I watched, I watched, I watched Dave Tepe's second event. I've never been seen him second event after one RM. You know what I mean? So the, yeah. for me, that's some sort of fatigue there going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> do, you remember, so, do you remember, what was it on T Nation? It was the death squat from Dave Tate, where he does like a 20 rep box squat and they just made it so epic and he was like chucking up and it was like, oh my God. It was just is that the, so good. Is that the one on the spider bar, is it? Yeah, where he just goes, yeah, I think yeah. it's after he's had like, they list all his injuries. They like talk about, you know, he's had every, you know, his hip replaced, both hips. And he's doing like a super high box squat, but just going absolutely nuts. And they're like, the death squat. And it was just, <laughs> when you're like an eight, like a 17 year old lifter, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and all the epic music and stuff like that. I mean, Dave Tate is a beast. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't to get away from him. Like, but uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, as far as research is concerned, like, I haven't seen a piece of data saying that a 20 rep squat per set is better than a 10 rep squat per set or an eight sets rep squat set. So why would you do squats to 20 when you can get the same growth for me? I don't understand the logic behind that. I can still understand the logic behind it if I was going to use a leg press, which would be automatically be safer. And obviously if you miss a rep and you know, you, you know, and you're not, it's not, there's not as much weight and things to go problem. Sorry, things to go wrong. But um, I just don't see really any point. Like you see, this CrossFit is doing sets of twenty, gets a timer, and it's like, well, we'll we'll, we'll log all these sloppy reps in, and hopefully we don't get injured. But as long as I shave five seconds off the actual clock, you know, maybe get them guys to do that in the machine rather than if you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this actual uh, be in love with the pain sort of argument. And you know, I've cut all my hands, and so I'm hardcore, I'm epic. I mean, for me, the guy that walks away with the gold medal is the is the hardcore epic guy who did everything right. You know what I mean? So. Yes, you got a couple of those as well. So, you know, talk the talk, walk the walk, eh? So, in terms of getting, you've got, I said you've got a couple of those with uh, your gold medals in powerlifting. So, obviously, you talk the talk, walk the walk. Back, was it any yeah. also back up your bullshit? There you go. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I think there's a shaker one about saying, like, you know, I won't pity you. And yeah, was it, yeah, I'll pity you, go for and pity you. But the guy who wins the medal won't pity you at all. Like, you know, I mean, it was, it was something, something on them lines. So Russian, is it? So in terms of like, you know, I'm quite interested because I, you know, started doing a bit more sort of, I don't know, rep work or punch training, however you want to call it. But I mean, what does it, what does it take for a bodybuilder to get a pro card? It sounds like you have to be very meticulous, very specific, and things can get quite nasty towards the end. What's, how do you get someone in show condition? Um, well, I mean, you, you just got to dive into the, to the edge of starvation, really. But I mean. I mean, there's, there's ways and means in doing that. There's, there's the guys out there will have women and will go, there's your thousand calorie meal plan, you know, day one. I'll see you in 16 weeks. That'll be, you know, that'll be a thousand dollars. But there's also ways of going, well, deal with them people and try and bring them calories down slowly, get them in the same place and keep them on food as long as possible so there isn't that many actual detrimental effects at the end. I mean, it's, it's all risky, but like you can minimize risk. You don't always have to look for the easy way out, whether that's, you know, I've seen, what did I see a lady, she was giving me her routine and she came to me and she was doing like, I think it was 80 sets a week for like, uh, somebody between 40 and 80 sets a week for legs. Oh. Well, I'm going, she goes, I'm on, I'm on 2,200 calories. I went, I'm not surprised. I said, you know, I said, you know, I, I said, you're I said, you, a massive deficit if you're doing 80 sets a week. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know are you not recovering? Uh, by the way, I sell drugs. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you gotta have that multiple revenue streams when you like when you're dealing with these dodgy guys you know what i mean so it's like well 
I think that at the end of the day, they're just trying to make them out, work them out of food they're eating rather than just bring the calories down a little bit and obviously letting the actual repair, not actually balancing that ratio. But half these, you see these nice transformation videos and you go, she looks great on stage, but how many didn't make it to stage? Mm. So, you yeah. know, someone, for, me, for, me, for me, a good coach is the one that has 15 clients and like 12 get to stage versus the guy who has 15 clients and only three get to stage, if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, well, having been at the tail end of kind of a prep yeah um those last like six weeks or so it's just as you said it's a mental game and if your coach has been slowly bringing down the food rather than just on day one you're on like 1500 calories you're doing an hour of cardio every single day like when you're in the last few weeks and it's then starting to get hard you can mentally push through that whereas if it's from day one and you've got a 16-week prep, by the time you're at the end of week four, you're like, fuck this. This is awful. Have you trained assisted athletes and non-assisted athletes to the stage as well, did you say? Yeah, I've trained, I've trained both. Most of my pro cards were in national athletes. So. Okay. So do you find there is, do you have to take a slightly different approach like with the assisted athletes? Because obviously you've got, other compounds in there that can speed it up. So do you tend to do longer diets for natural athletes compared to assisted? Is, is there many differences or is it pretty much stick, get them in a calorie deficit and it's very, very person dependent? I think there's a lot to be said about if you're actually a good coach that your training should be like reactive to what's going on. So if you've got a drug guy and you can handle an extra two or three sets, Somewhere on the lines, the lines, your program should be able to work out that you require some two or three sets. And if the natural guy needs two or three sets less, your, your program should go, well, he's under that much fatigue, you know, remove that from the actual thing. Same with women, you know, women need more, but really your program should be able to work that out. And for instance, like, you know, all the menstrual cycle stuff, I'm getting a bit off topic here, like, but... Uh, no, it's great, we talked like, about that. Yeah, with the mental cycle thing, when they say, well, the stronger in certain phases and the weaker than others, well, we'll write these 10 books and you need to learn all these hormones. But really, if you're running an RPE system or something that you can change, but well, when, the, when they're weaker, do not take the actual weight off the actual bar and actually adjust anyway with the RPE. And when they're stronger, do not put the weight back on the bar when, they, when they're using RPE anyway. So you've got all this big, massive load of theory, but if you're actually using an actual decent training program in the actual first place, then it shouldn't really matter at all, you know what I'm saying? So, And you were asked questions about um, natural athletes before. I think the biggest thing with natural athletes and winning pro cards is um, leanness. I mean, a lot of my guys do recomp in natural competition, but if you haven't got the muscle on before they go into the diet, then, you know, you're already fighting and losing battles. So I think, you know, you look at people like Alberto Nunes, and the reason why then guys are like that, I mean, I think they look leaner than actual, some of the actual guys that are on drugs even though we go, it's easy for guys on drugs, so how come the guys on drugs aren't looking as lean as the natural guys? But there's also a big thing about drug timing as well. Certain compounds you know, make them like hold water and stuff like that. So if you've got a coach that doesn't know what he's doing and then they don't pull the right drugs out at the right time, they're never going to come on stage dry because they're full of estrogen and you know water retention. And some of the guys, I've seen the, some of those quote-unquote great coaches try and put the actual women on actual men's, men's drugs as well. So there's so much... That's why I don't really do with that, that side that much very, very often because it seems to be, you know, a lot of damage and a lot of, uh, a lot of sacrifice for basically a, a plastic trophy at the end of the day if you're not going to go on the Olympia stage and actually make money from it, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I, well, I 100% kind of agree with that. So, like, for me, 
it's always been a personal choice. Like my health and longevity is more important to me than what I can get out of the sport. So that's why I've never kind of gone down the assisted route. I have a massive amount of respect for anybody who does that. Like, and especially if they go to that high level, because it's not just like a massive amount of time, it's a massive money investment as well. Like if you see the cost of some of these cycles, these guys do, and some of them, as you said, unless you're kind of making it to the top tiers of that sport, you're not really making a lot of money back. You might get a bit of a supplement sponsorship here where somebody will send you some free creatine, but you're probably going to be running it at a loss for a number of years before you ever get a pro card. I mean, with the ease it is to kind of get a pro card now, like it's one of these things where only kind of the top tier of the pros again now are actually making any sort of profit from it. So I think what you said there is in to you, it, it kind of the health of your athletes compared to kind of like the short term things that they kind of get from it. I think it's very, very good to hear that from like a coaching side as well. I think a lot uh, in the, in the anabolics defense corner, natural bodybuilding could be healthier if they actually used the right amount of testosterone to correct the, uh, to correct the actual problems they have when they're actually super lean as well. But the problem is, is when you bring that in there, you're, you're going to be, you're going to, first of all, you're not going to be a natural athlete anymore. So you're going to have to go against drug guys. And these drug guys are willing, some guys just, you know, as genetic wise can take more drugs than other people and they're willing to spend more on drugs than you are. So, so you know, you might, be on a quote-unquote cheap cycle, but you, you're going to go against a guy who's on a quote-unquote really expensive cycle and he's willing to put all his money in there and not take his family on holidays and stuff like that. The, the balance isn't there. I mean, I prefer working with natural people, generally speaking, because a lot of the actual guys that want to do untested uh, competitions for me are, are normally generally lazy. The, the first thing is, uh, will, you write me a, will you write me a steroid cycle? And I'm like, straight away, I don't respond to them straight away because they're an athlete that knows what he's doing is also going to ask about the training and everything that goes involved with it straight away. He isn't looking for the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of uh, super stack that's worth thousands of pounds because I don't think it really exists, you know what I mean? So I think you're completely right there. I think a lot of the people who go assisted too early are doing it because they haven't put the groundwork in on the training and the nutrition. So they turn to drugs to make up for the fact that they're not training hard enough or they're not watching their diet. They're not making sure that they get enough food in to kind of be able to grow. Like I've got friends who are assisted and depending on how long the workouts are, if it's about a 45 minute to an hour workout, I can normally pretty much keep up with them like rep for rep, pound for pound. But what happens is they can then go on to train for two hours, whereas around the 45, 60 minute mark, the fatigue starts to kick in and I'll essentially start to drop off. And I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize about like steroids and stuff. It's not a super drug that's just going to make you get massive. You still have to train hard. It's just you can recover better and you can go for longer. In my observation, <laughs> it's been slightly different on an advanced level. When I've seen guys using big weights, the, the weights the normal shifting 50-20% more than the natural guy as well. So I don't think the difference between sets between a natural guy and an athlete guy is that much difference. It might be two or three, four sets a week, but you've got to bear in mind with all the extra good uh, drugs, that guys put an extra 15-20% more weight on the bar 
Yeah. And they're still running the same CNS system as well. So I don't always actually actually see that. I more see maybe maybe at the intermediate level, yeah, because you know they're messing about. But like, it'd be hard as a natural to keep. Up, yeah. yeah, it'd be hard as a natural to keep up the natural with the weight on the bar. Yeah. But volume wise, if you look at some of the actual biggest bodybuilders out there, like you know Dorian Yates and you know Mike Mensah and stuff like that, they were doing what 10, 12 sets yeah. a week. So obviously there's a big skew on that, and like guys like your Jordan Peters or your you know, your, your, your mountain dog and stuff like that, which gets back into the, you know, the old Maya Reps idea again. But, uh, so, you know, there's obviously guys that use a lot of volumes, lots of guys that use a little amount of volume. So I think really going back to like being proactive, you need to work out what the actual individual athlete needs anyway, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, people take them because they work, but yeah, especially in strength sports, you just, I think that 15 to 20% rule is probably, about right i've only worked with, with one or two uh, enhanced guys one of them i didn't know was enhanced at the time and then i found out it was and i was like ah oh, i'm getting really good at this programming stuff you know he's added like 20 fake kilos to his dead in like six <laughs> weeks i was like oh now it makes sense yes yeah. so, i mean there's, there's a reason people take them they work i'm almost of the opinion if you're going to spend hundreds of pounds on supplements or get down that rabbit hole just go speak to someone clever about some drugs and take them so you know what i mean <laughs> um, i mean it's, it's all horses for courses you know what i mean i don't I normally try and keep natural athletes natural as possible because normally in natural federations, if you're clever about it and choose the right shows, you can do really well and have a long career. I mean, but in like untested shows, you're really looking, I mean, there is NABA, but like you're really looking at the IFBB. And some of the guys at the, like Olympia, you see news articles where the guys are in the top 10 out of millions of people can't even make a living. So is, is it really worth it, you know? I mean, it's all personal choice. I mean, the natural athletes I've seen that go on and try and tell me to take drugs, so the ones going, I want to see what the best I can be. But they're the first ones to take the list, go up that 20% and then just stall. Mm. And then they, they, they don't know because they haven't spent enough time to actually learn how to actually break the plateaus. So they will actually use drugs all year round and actually not actually go any further anyway. So or or they'll try not the dose and next thing you know you know they've got all sorts of problems and yeah down, 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 down the road. all sorts of issues going on but i mean complete change of subject but <clears throat> do you, do you, are you still doing your uh three lift shirts uh, are you still doing some apparel i know you do a lot of custom pieces i think you got is that a dragon ball z one on you got there or something else that's something else but uh something else you made. No, i know you got really. quite into apparel and i like, i've got i think i've got three or four and my god I think I've got Captain America Winter Soldier one, which I wear all the time. Love it. But uh, even after a couple of years, they're still fitting great. So I'm just wondering, what was the uh, thought processes behind that? Are you still doing it? And how's it going? Uh, I'm not really doing it at the moment. I'm more doing it for like for fun. It was it was more of a passion project anyway. Like so, if I see a lifter or someone comes to me with a good idea or there's a logo I like, I'll do it now. But it's not really. Um, I don't really take in. I don't really have the shopper anymore like that. So. Yeah. I do do bits of bobs here. It's just more for my amusement, more as a hobby on the, on the, on the outside than a, than a money maker. It was never, I never made any money from it anyway, to be honest with you. Yeah, but, but even for what you yeah. paid for just as a hobby, mate, honestly, it's, it's better than most brands I've bought from. <laughs> like, it really was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I did a lot of, you know, back to that research side again, like, you know, because when I'm writing articles and stuff, like, I like to look into all the actual different fabrics and then, you know, same way I look into all different training, uh, training routines as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a good response about them, but it's a bit hard to, Go, you know, when I'm making all these things by hand, you know, you can get a guy at screen print and he can knock a design on there for 30 pence a go when I'm sitting there, you know, for like three or four hours making a t shirt, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, but then, um, sort of got you into, I think, I think I traded one of you for a couple of bottles of whiskey. You still having, uh, about getting into your whiskey? Uh, I've got just, you know, I've been, I've, I've eased off a little bit. Like, I did try that green spot, it was, it was, it was, de it was definitely decent, but, uh, I've, 
come to a point now when I got injured a while back. So I'm like, I'm like, well, do I do I carry on drinking or do I focus back into trying and make it 2021 like a run for the world championships? Then you know. So yeah, at the moment, I've, I've cut it all back really. So. Oh, that's good. But you mentioned injury. About, am I right in saying, that it, you know, if you want to talk about it, so you had some kind of, um, like, severe headaches or migraines or something? Yeah, well, I think, to be honest, because, um, well, long story short, like, cause obviously I'm an untested lifter. Um, I can't remember what it was now. Like, yeah, I, I, I got um, with, you know, you know, the NHS, like, I got some blood tests there showing I was deficient, even though I was off actual, uh, I was below the range. Uh, they wouldn't prescribe me any testosterone and stuff like that. So I started taking it myself. But obviously, they were really funny about me getting blood tests and stuff like that. So I didn't bother getting any blood tests and done that. But then I realized my, my RBC, because the side effect of steroids, generally speaking, if you take too many, or you don't, even if you take a little amount, sometimes you have to give blood twice, two or three times a year. Yes. My, yeah. So, like, um, they reckon that, well, I reckon personally, they said, well, the doctor said I thought she suspected I had a stroke. But looking into the symptoms, and all the pain and stuff like that. My blood was that thick for seven years. It probably it probably didn't do me any favors, you know. So then obviously my, my actually half my actual body went numb. And then there's all these things that all these guys that want to take all these drugs and stuff, and they won't get blood work done whatsoever. And I'm I'm the guy who's looked into all this sort of stuff. And there's not many people went well, you know, this RBC, you know, red blood count because it's basically how thick your blood is. Is an issue, but it comes to a point where it was actually blocking natural vessels in my actual body and stuff like that, you know. So, but and then then half my body started going dead, and I couldn't put weight on the bar and keep balanced and stuff like that. So, you know, getting getting healthy and trying to get to the meat is the biggest thing again. So, how many months have I got? It It sounds horrific. I think you're playing it down a little bit. I remember you wrote a couple of posts. It just sounded awful. I mean, uh, how are you now? Oh, I'm I'm on the road recovery now. Like, I mean, I'm prescribed now. Obviously, the doctor's seen what it was like and seen my blood and stuff like that now. I've got a guy who, well, you know, it's all legit and it's all NHS and yeah. like my, my prescription is tiny compared to some guys. I mean, Americans are only on like 200 milligrams a week. I'm on like 100 milligrams. So I'm very, even at the end of actually when I've taken the stuff, I'm actually on the low side of normal rather than actual normal, normal. So, but yeah. you know, it's something, it's something I have to do because obviously at the end of the day, you know, dead guys can't put up, can't, can't, can't get PRs, you know? So it's, yeah. it's one of those things. It is quite a thing. So you coming? That, that's a good question. I think that pops up. Um, kind of pops up occasionally. So you've had a layoff. You had a little bit of time out from training. Some big health issues. I've seen you're putting some decent squat videos back up again. How how do you start the process of getting yourself, you know, fit or getting yourself back up towards gearing towards world championships? Where do you where do you begin with your training? Well, for me, it was a lot of um, obviously when I, I stopped lifting for a while, and it was about I just lost all my good habits. And obviously, I lost a lot of strength as well. I think I went down to like, you know, like maybe like a 380 pound squat or something like that. Or, but then it was like, well, I need to do something here. And it was like, I'll promise myself I'll get one, two sets done under the, the actual squat bar a week. And then, you know, obviously, being that I am detrained, muscle memory started kicking in. So my PR started going up really quickly. And it was like, well, I'll make that four now, I'll make that six now. But if I went straight in and like, you know, what I was used to be doing, chances are I would have quit. And I started like making healthy changes, like, you know, I'll make sure I'll have one protein shake a day. So my actual protein's a reasonable amount. And basically just trying to get a good habit and then put another good habit on top of that and a good habit on top of that. Now I'm looking to train maybe, I'm thinking about training daily now, squatting maybe two sets a day. We've tried putting 14 sets a week, come, come this week. But um, it's just basically like when you get a new lifter, you can burn them out straight away and they'll, then they'll quit. Or you can just get them to make, you know, easy wins, easy wins here and easy wins there that all add up to a big win in the end, you know? Yeah, you so it's interesting you say that because, like, 
as you said, it's exactly what we would do with somebody who's completely new to training. It's, as you said, you start off small, achievable wins where they can get those positive habits. So for me, like I'll make a daily habit sheet where they can put stickers or ticks or something on it. Just something, right, I've done 6,000 steps, tick it off, get a win. And as you said, those wins snowball. And as they snowball, you build on top of them. Like so many people will come to us as coaches and they want to start off at like five days training a week. And they want to start throwing cardio and everything in right at the start. And we almost like have to hold them back. So it's interesting you saying when you're in a detrained state, you would then follow the same process. I mean, I was pretty much responding like an actual thing, but it was a habit. I mean, it's like, you know, quitting smoking, you know? I mean, do you, do you just like go cold turkey or do you start registering that down so it's a little bit easier for you? Yeah, you got me thinking of like a train rolling, you know, you just start the engine, the wheels slowly turn and then they get, you're building momentum. I, I call it, um, you know, building momentum. I think, uh, what's his name, Mike? I've forgotten his surname now. Doesn't matter now, uh, proper momentum, like really kind of just building things the whole time, like really just trying to keep that steamroller going. If it's the same thing, you say from starting over again, you know, you're, you're lifting weights, which probably, you know, have to check your ego, ego at the door and just know that you're going to end up around there again. But you have to be patient and take your time and build that yeah. um, momentum. I mean, I, I call it positioning. So, like, for instance, like, I know there's certain things I need to do to get a PR. But like, so for instance, I add, I get myself over 120 grams, probably 140 grams. I know I'm slowly pointing myself towards that PR and guiding the shipping slowly. Yeah. So I right. know, yeah. So I know like muscle memory kicking at low reps, but I know that at some point my reps are going to have, to, my set's going to have to be high. So you know, I'm going four, eight, 12, 14, and slowly, slowly moving the ship over rather than doing it all in one go. You know. Right. Uh, so that's why I just call it nutritional positioning or other sort of lines where. It's easy to say, well, if I want it good enough, just knock a shake back in the morning and then eat like a human being. But I know for a fact that those 40 grams of protein will help me recover and it will also help me eat less calories as well. And, then, you know, it's just keep, keep building on that, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned trade squatting daily. Like, I think one of the important things, we are a home gym podcast. So I think it's important to mention you, you train pretty much exclusively at home with um, some pretty nice kits. I mean, if you want to just talk about the room you train in and what you've got. Okay, well, I train in the well, I train in my bedroom on the um, I think it's an eight by eight platform uh, combo rack. So like same one, like it's not not the same one I use in my federation, but it's probably sort of same one you see in the IPF. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's a it's a calibrated rogue setup. I mean, I've started selling a few bits bits and bobs off there, but like you know, I can get more pretty much everything I have to do bar calves, which I would never train anyway. Because, you know, it's, it's not often I go out and show my calves off, you know what I'm saying? But being a former fat guy, you know, my calves aren't too bad anyway, so I'm all right. But, yeah, it's, um, I used to have deadlift bars, and I think I got rid of that. Because I went really, really Pacific. But then again, you might, people might think you might, for a rack, might think you're crazy spending a thousand pounds on a rack. But if, it, if it's your main job and it's your life, then, you know, it's an investment for the future. Because you can always sell that equipment back on, especially in this environment, you know. Yeah, I think what you've done with your rack, I mean, if you looked at it from someone that didn't really understand gyms, they would say it's just a rack and a bar and weights. But, you know, to the home gym, we know we've got your IPF rack, you've got your, I think, Ohio power bars, you've got road calibrated weights. We know there's some serious cash invested into there, but I think you've, you know, what, I think what's great to me is you've got, you know, some, is it European medals, British medals, and it's all come from training at home in your bedroom. Yeah, I've got a, I've got, I've got um, local medals, local overalls, national medals, and European medals. 
Yeah. It's all but, come from training out of your bedroom in Iraq, which is yeah, like yeah. the beauty of home gyms. To be honest, though, I'm, I'm, starting, I'm starting to actually reverse my actual mentality a bit on actual all the expensive equipment. So I've started actually lift, lifting on cheaper and cheaper and cheaper equipment to see how low I can go. And to be honest, you know, I can get away and still improve on a very, very rudimentary kit. If anything, I probably would trade the actual uh, combo rack in for an actual normal cage so mm -hmm. I could do pull-ups. You know what I mean? So things like that, I don't think you have to do that much. I mean, I was watching a YouTube the other day where a guy built a squat rack and, a, you know, like a bench out of like pieces of wood and some concrete. And I was thinking, well, I could probably compete at my level if I wanted to just doing floor press. So if I could, as long as I could do a floor press on the ground without a bench and something to squat from, I could still probably compete at an actual international level, no problem at all. Well, I think that's an interesting point, as you said, that it's not necessarily having all the expensive equipment. It's your mentality. So the fact that you can go after it and still train hard and you don't use it as an excuse. Um, there's a book I read a few years ago. It's called like the gold mine effect. And it was all about these like pockets of success. And it was talking about like uh, Jamaican sprinters um, I think it was South Korean like golfers and like the Russian tennis players and stuff like that. And a common theme across all these like pockets of like really, really successful athletes was that actually they didn't have the best quality facilities. So like the Jamaican sprinters were all running in like bare feet most of the time as they were like growing up. It's only when they got up to a professional level that they got that kind of investment. Like their weights room is like, something you see down your local spit and sawdust gym like but they kept it like that on purpose because it was more about building a strong mind and a strong mentality before you gave them the top level kit because if you're not strong like the difference between like the top tier and the lower divisions it's all it's all a mental game at the end of the day yeah i mean obviously they live that life but that's an interesting point that you made there because some of the actual specialist equipment I actually bought, I think will hold me, hold me back as well. One of the things people don't realize I do when I actually compete is I've got a, I used to have a deadlift bar. And obviously on deadlift bar, it actually would, it would actually bend maybe an extra two or three inches more than a normal bar would. When I go into a meet, I warm up on the actual stick bar. And when I actually go out there and I run out there and I actually go and hit the deadlift bar, suddenly that deadlift bar feels that much lighter for me. So mentally, I've tuned myself into that stiffer bar. And if anything, the actual stiffer bar now is giving me more range of motion and probably giving me more hypertrophy as well. So sometimes having the best kit and being sport from day one probably isn't the best way to go. So now I'm going to carry on doing the actual stiff bars and pulling stiff bars, then, then suddenly realize I've made myself it easier for me if I have to pull something more than I think I can do on actual meet day. So. Yeah, makes sense. Your world champions have been built at home. I'm trying to think, you know, I'm quite into because of, of my weight class, I'm quite into is it Dennis Cornelius and Tony Cliff, you know, two absolute monster lifters that just have a rack and weights at home. In fact, I think Dennis Cornelius has got like a rack his <laughs> uncle made 30 years ago and he's squatting like 400 kilos in bare feet at home. It's insane on like a wooden platform yeah. that made as uh, what do you call it uh, two by fours it just blows my mind so it, it's doable i think with home gyms you know i'm never one if someone wants to spend a thousand pound on a rack or a rep it's totally your choice it's your home gym but uh, you know you can get the results of some rough and ready rusty stuff but if you want to spend tons of money yeah it's not a problem it's just no you you don't need to it's just you know if you want to yeah i mean do you not remember the old pete rubish videos where he was pulling 800 900 pound in his in his basement, he had the washing machine in the back going around and, you know, all this rusty weight. And it's like, 
Yeah. Yes, uh, Unbelievable. I was in his parents' basement. He was quite famous on the old forums, wasn't he? Just that you'd see it in the background and then he's just pulling these insane weights. Uh, so it's, it's doable, you know, it's, um, it, 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 yeah, of course it's doable. You know, I'm thinking of rugby now in terms of like Wasp always prided themselves on having a bit of a, when they won the Heineken Cup, they were saying, you know, we don't have any near what anyone else has got, but we choose to keep it that's with, that way because we feel it builds a champion's mindset. Yeah, and that's another interesting one when people like drop the deadlifts all the time, even though like, you know, absolutely in competition. But I always say like, it's going to cause injury, but then you look at people like Benedict Magnuson when he pulls that thousand and he puts it down so lovely as well. You go, well, if you can put a thousand down, I'm sure you can put 500 down, all right? You know what I mean? Oh, so it's all mental. First thing I do with people that can't control a deadlift lowering, I'm like, right, we're going to do tempo deads because you need to learn how to do that. Because to me, it seems like you're missing out on a whole part of the movement um, to build up. Is that like... Is- is that, is that the post like below the knee sort of deadlift, is it? No, more just controlling the eccentric. Just, you know, I've got some, I've okay. got some seriously strong guys that can lift a lot of weight, but they cannot lower the bar for the, for the life of them. You, you put around 50% and tell them to lower it in two, three seconds, they can't do it. So the first thing That's... I do is like, well, yeah, well, I was like, there's something we need to improve straight away. So you get them and get them better at that, and all of a sudden, their deadlifts feel better again. Yeah, and, and then also the grip strength normally knackered as well. I've seen guys at beats pull the thing and then just slam the bar down and suddenly get reds. And they're like, and then they suddenly go mental. And it's like, well, you know, it's in the rules. <laughs> Who's yeah, fault is it, you know? One of those things about reading the rules for each particular <laughs> federation before you go and compete, isn't it? So it's... Oh, the I'm the very for those sort of... It's the same thing at, like, bodybuilding shows when... So, like, uh, one of the rules for, um, like, natural bodybuilding is you get a one-minute free posing routine whereas when you go to unassisted shows or the higher levels it might be two or three minutes and there's people that are like halfway through their routine and the music stops and it's like you've got a minute so that's for not you didn't read the rules you've assumed you've watched your favorite bodybuilder at the olympia going through a two three minute routine and you're like halfway through and the music stops and you've gone okay. i'm creased at that so they were like yeah then it stops like just keep like <laughs> we know that like, the pony and dynamite style where he just sprints off the stage. That's <laughs> amazing, isn't it? Oh, that's, the, that's, that's the thing about bodybuilding. I wish I was a posing coach because the amount of people that could go pro that don't go pro can't pose. It's unreal, like so. Yeah, that's definitely a tip there. I don't For know me, if you know I, I've had to really work on my posing since oh, my first competition. My first competition's posing was awful. It's so bad. Luckily, the photographer on the day was very, very good. So when I did a good pose, they caught it. But looking back at it now, it's like, oh, I didn't really deserve to be up there. But again, it's, it's, all, it's all a learning curve. Like on your first competition, you're so fucking nervous just about being on stage. You're not really thinking about how important posing is. And it's one of those things that I've said to a lot of guys that are thinking about competing. It's like, don't go with like the only thing you want to get out of that day is winning because you'll probably be really disappointed on your first show because 99 out of 100 guys on their first show are going to pose poorly that's just going to be what happens so if you don't place on your first show it's probably it might not be because what the package that you brought isn't good enough to win is you haven't displayed it properly so yeah it's interesting that you're saying about um most people are terrible posers because yeah that's something that i've observed as well like you can have people that come on stage that aren't necessarily 
the biggest and they might not be even be in the best condition but if they compose well they can hide their flaws really really well um so before actually that's a good point no no carry Sorry, on. on i was gonna i was gonna actually address about the actual the reason why actually um I do actually get a lot of actual natural lifters, uh, bodybuilders actually do, to do the powerlifting meets because it's obviously very welcoming and they don't, there's, there's not really a judgment there. Like if, you're, if you lift something light, people don't really care because they're not really tuned in. But I think, especially coming off shows and going into shows, when, the, when people binge and stuff, like having a meet penciled in on the way down and penciled in on the way up at a Pacific weight class uh, adds because once you remove that goal, people go crazy. Well, they know they've got to go into a meet four weeks after the last show, and then they, they, you know they're more likely to do the actual refeed diet and follow things properly as well. So it's probably a good yeah. idea. That's an interesting that, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? That's a very very interesting um, point there. Actually, and it's not something that I'd ever thought of. But because to be honest, I went off to uh, after my first. So after my first show, I booked a second one straight away. So I competed in early September and then I competed again in November. But um, by Christmas, I was probably up 10 kilos-ish from a stage weight, just went completely off the deep end, ate everything that I could get hold of. All those things I was saying to myself, no, I can't. I just, I just ate it all. So it's interesting saying that having something for a different discipline to then focus on that it's not necessarily an aesthetic goal but i've got to stay under say so i competed the under 70 kilos in bodybuilding so i yeah. know i've got to stay under 75 or whatever the weight classes uh, are in power yeah. i don't know them um would help you because i know then i've got to refeed myself back up to 75 and it just, as you said, gives you that another like intermediate thing that's still doing something that you enjoy. You can still see your strength coming back up over those kind of few weeks as the body fat starts to come back on you, but you can't then binge and completely spike in the other direction. Exactly, yeah. The thing about weight class is like the powerlifting is strongman as well. I, I found like, you talk about getting to the stage of not dying. I find when you when you put doing these weight like you you've probably done a lot more drastic ones than me with your twenty four hours. But like, I find I was spending more time worried about the weight cut than actually performing on the day, which to me just seemed insane. Which is one of the reasons I stopped doing it. I stopped pushing clients into drastically low weight classes because it just becomes crazy, and you still have, have the same post show rebound as well, even though you've only dieted really for like a month. You still go nuts afterwards, but yeah, weight weight cuts and oh, it brings bringing back nightmares and shudders. Yeah, yeah the amount of uh, actual new lifters that want to actually do weight cuts is unreal. Oh, uh, they just want they want to do it, and, and they've never used a squat bar before, and suddenly, like, well, should you not go in without that? Because it's a massive mind, you know, mind fuck. You know what I mean? So I don't know why people want to volunteer and do that sort of thing. I think the most I've done is uh, around like ten or eleven kilos in a week. It's probably, probably, probably my best. I've done three pound weeks. So I've competed from 75 kilograms. Now I've moved to the 90 now. So, you know, every time it wasn't, every time it wasn't working, and then, you know, I like the, uh, I did the old binge thing as well. When I got 75 kilograms there, and then when I finished that meet, I just ate up to around about 87 kilograms, probably in six, seven weeks. I was putting like two kilograms a week on, like, you know, so it's, it was, and I, was, I wasn't even enjoying the food. I think there's one point where I actually ate uh, a box and a half of Quest in a single day. So, Quest? Just stick it in there. Yeah, well, yeah, well, pretty well fill us up. I'll, I'll eat your entire box of Quest. They've got like 10 grams of fiber a bar. Like, could you, that's <laughs> insane. 
Oh, I think it was more, I think it was 15 to 20, but I was rolling around the floor in so much pain it was unreal. Because obviously it all started fermenting in my gut. And I was just like, you know, I, even though I was in pain, I still managed to peel open another bar and eat another one. Because uh, it was like everything was just off, 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 off the rails at that point. So uh, that's when you know your relationship with food has got fucked up. <laughs> you're rolling that, around with the fiber and you're just like, nope, another one's going in. <laughs> about bodybuilders um maybe not be was it was it was it a paper i can't, I can't i'll try and find it about uh something the relationship with food or people that do bodybuilding have already have um food disorders i think before oh yeah they... like if you look into yeah. bodybuilding as a sport although it's meant to be like health and fitness you have never met a group of people with more eating disorders in your life like that's the bit of the sport they don't say so yes this guy is at like five percent body fat however if you looked at his everyday life that is not a healthy normal way to live like weighing every single piece of food that goes into you doing an hour of cardio every single day that's not that's not normal that is disordered eating it might not be an eating disorder but it's disordered eating and to get out of that mindset like this is where like the especially the natty guys like your relationship with food it probably took me a good so i didn't i competed in the november my relationship with food probably didn't return to normal until about the march of the year afterwards where i was like okay i can just i can rely on like my body signals to now tell me when i'm hungry i can't not have any sort of structure in so it what's that about six months for it to kind of get back to normal to then be going into a growth phase so and that's the bit that people don't show on social media because it's not it's not sexy it doesn't sell anything to tell you that if you do this you're probably going to give yourself some sort of mental health issue for six months afterwards yeah i mean i totally agree with that i agree with it creating there but the actual post was um it was about the idea that i've seen women like this online where they've already got an eating disorder and then they go into butt bikini and then, then they will get all the encouragement from Instagram saying, Oh, you look great darling. And even though like, cause you know, you can't body shame someone, but they, could, they, could, they are feeling back from people saying that, well, I'll get them to okay my eating disorder. And this girl in general, bless her, like she, you know, before she even started going into competition, had a gaunt face, it was all recessed. It didn't look like, she looked like she had, um, she looked like one of them starving kids on, on, on an adverts and you could see, but everyone was, you know, like you know, clapping their hands and stuff like that. And it was just like, it was just basically encouraging her to try and kill herself, really. And it was, oh, man. yeah, it has, I guess, the dark side of it, right? It, it, yeah, right. <laughs> we're gonna need to crack on with some questions or else we're gonna run out of time. Okay, go on. Sit and talk shop like all day. Um, so, Jordan Crocker, I'd be interested to know what your conditioning programs look like for bodybuilding and powerlifting, respectively. You're going to be severely disappointed. <laughs> well, I think everything over five reps is a conditioning, isn't it? <laughs> Eat less. Well, yeah, on a, on a serious uh, answer to that one there, I believe that doing semi-high reps is a form of hit training because you're doing, you know, 10 to 15, 20 seconds of actual high, maximum heart rate, taking a break. And then if you look at people over months, if they're squatting several times a week, you will actually see their condition improve anyway. I believe that people there'll be there will be some people that require extra conditioning on top of that as well. And Daniel probably knows that I for athletes, there's actually something 
you can monitor your resting heart rate. There's free apps on the actual phone at the moment in time. And there is leagues by weight and gender, how low your heartbeat should be if you are not very fit to average to elite. So I would normally get most bodybuilders and actual um, and powerlifters just to aim for the good one because they, they do weigh a little bit more and you don't really want to detract from their training. The end goal is to just do enough so it improves to enhance the training so they can do more volume. So, and then you'd use, you know, you'd introduce like, you know, low intensity cardio two or three times a week, uh, normally on a bike because it causes less issues than an actual um, on a treadmill because there's less eccentric loading and stuff like that. But your goal is to, in the end, have something measurable that's not, like I said, it's not subjective. You can measure your resting heart rate get it towards them sort of goals there and then have that in, enhanced there. And I just use that as an icing on the cake and then I'll dial calories in from there. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of this guy to get people to do uh, double cardios that will actually, you know, it's called, what's it called? Uh, interference of the actual hypertrophy when you actually are cutting because you're, you're sort of trying to, you know, I try and do it on a separate day and you're trying to use it to enhance the cut rather than actually make the cut, you know? Yeah, I agree with that kind of completely. Like if I put cardio in with clients, I'll try and do it on a separate day to their weightlifting if they can. Um, but then obviously for some people in terms of the time that's available, what I say to them is right, at least separated by a meal. So if you can do your weights or your cardio in the morning, just have it on the, essentially the opposite side of the day if you can't do it on a separate day. Um, right. Um, Damn, exactly. this one's for me yeah. and you. So, I mean, from, oh, sorry, carry on. I was going to say, I mean, I originally got it from Greg Knuckles' website, which was a strength theory. And I think the article called is why should powerlifters train more like bodybuilders? And it'll give you some heart rate sort of recommendations in there to look at. Perfect. Great. Um, so, yeah, Dan, this next one's for me and you. Uh, James, you guys have a fancy sport crossover. Dan has a crack at bodybuilding. Don, Don goes and dabbles at strongman. Would be interesting to see you both go for a comp. So, after what Russell said, I might not do strongman. I may look into doing some sort of powerlifting meet um, on the back end. So, I should be competing in either July or August next year for a natural bodybuilding competition. So I will look into see if there's any sort of uh, powerlifting meets going on around me. So nice. before we had this chat, it'd have been hell no. <laughs> but now Russell has convinced me actually having something like that after my main competition may actually help with the whole, as you said, mind fuck that comes with uh, dieting for so long. So yes, I probably will do a little bit of crossover and you guys will probably hear all about that because we're well, we'll probably cover the majority of my cutting phase next year as the podcast carries on. Uh, what about you, Dan? Do you ever fancy going in for some bodybuilding? Um, I'd never say never, but like I did, I, I guess the, the yeah, it, it appeals to me because I like that style of training and I really enjoy that kind of thing. And I think how <clears throat> like bodybuilding to me, out of all of them, sounds like the most difficult because it's not necessarily you know just lifting the weights and all that it's the absolute dedication to every single part of your life not just turning up to do a good session it's the the sleep the foods the dieting the training and right now you know when i've got like twins it's on the twins way, on my way. Yeah. Up, 
not really a good thing to do. It's, you know, I think Russell made me laugh earlier because he talks about not taking your family on holiday to get, some, <laughs> get your next cycle. And I think at my stage, at the stage of life I'm in right now, that is, you know, as far away from the cars as possible. So I'd never say never, but, I, but then part of me likes the idea of, you know, almost saying, all right, well, I'll do it. Even though on paper, it will probably be the hardest thing going. But sometimes I like that doing things when you're not really it's not a good time to do it. Cause I think most of the stuff I've done in my life with, you know, my first strongman comp happened because I went, fuck it. And it happened. My first, <laughs> my first powerlifting comp happened because I kept getting shit on my depth. So I was like, for fuck's sake, I'm going to do a meet. And I got, you know, three white lights on all my lifts. I was like, well, there you go. Um, and then, you know, most of the time it's come from, I guess I basically have to have someone say to me, you could never do that. And then I'll do it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's so, James, in about 18 months time. You need to ask that question again and say, Dan, I don't think you could do a bodybuilding competition and just frame it in a different way, and then he'll go and do one. Yeah. But then I, I think, Russ, you did a bit of a, a, bit of a strong man. You dabbled a little bit. Yeah, I did. A, um, I think you encouraged me, actually. Yeah. I did the, uh, I did the, I did the first timers. Yeah, I had a good time. I completely smashed my hands to bits. I, I definitely wouldn't rule that out again. I would, I would never do a bodybuilding competition because. Um, You've seen well, what happens. you've coached people through them, so you know how much of a head fuck it is. Yeah. No, I've been, I've been that lean before, oh, and okay. I wasn't. I was very snappy with the family, and then I wasn't getting sleep, and it was fixing all my numbers. And at the moment in time, I wouldn't put my family through that. And I know I, if I do it, I'll do it to win. I wouldn't go in semi conditioned, I'll go in fully conditioned, and it just wouldn't be fair on anyone around us if I did it, you know. I think you picked on a good thing there. You know, I think sometimes it's not talked about. I know I'm always the first to admit I think I competed way too much when my daughter came, because uh, because it really does take away from your life. It it becomes everything, and um, it's one of those things. That possibly regret. Well, I definitely regret doing as much as I did when my um, little girl came first along, because you're so used to having. You know, so it's a selfish mindset. It is. You know, if we're being honest, um, it's all about you. And then now you're that bit older, and there's all your family. You start to really understand. Oh, maybe that competes not the be all and all, but then you know on the other scale of the spectrum there's still guys and girls who have all that family and they're still just the same ones but you know it, it definitely is a, a big big ask and it gets a lot bigger as your family grows okay so from james again if you weren't into training what do you think your hobbies would be so number one for both you guys do you have any hobbies outside of training and reading about training uh and if not then like what do you think so say 10 years time when you've stopped training, what do you think would be something that you'd be interested in? That's so funny. It's like a question was if you have nothing else in your life but training. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I love the music. I always have I've done. I'm a bit gutted about the whole music industry at the moment. We're disappearing and a lot of bands struggling. Um, I drum. I'd like to pick that up again. I just do not have the time with what I need to do uh, with life at the moment. So I'd like to drum a bit more. Um, I've recently stop drinking as much but beer is quite a big passion i think and i do like my whiskey as well as uh, russell knows um and then yeah just music is a big, big one and then coffee obviously as well so coffee music and drinking yeah. so what about you russell uh, i don't have much outside of lifting to be honest i think uh, i started growing some mushrooms recently uh like like you know, like culinary ones but i think <laughs> sorry what kind <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oyster mushrooms. Not a special kind. <laughs> yeah, but I think for, for, for me, I think if I don't carry on powerlifting, I'll probably quit lifting and it'll probably actually shorten my lifespan. And the good thing about powerlifting, there's actually master's levels. There's a master's one, master's two. So in 10 years, I'll be a master's two lifter anyway. 
I, need, I might not be lifting as much, but at least I'll keep myself healthy and use that as a sideline to keep myself in the gym and keep myself healthy, you know? So. Makes sense. Well, for me, for those that didn't know, I am a massive sci-fi nerd. So I would probably be about 300 pounds and sat playing Halo until the early hours of the morning. So yeah, I am a massive geek. Um, which is probably why I read so much, but yeah, so mass massively a geek, very into like Halo, Star Wars, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's what I would be doing. And I probably weigh a lot more than I do as well. Um, Rachel Smith, I'd love to know the main differences in powerlifting program Russell uses with his male and female client clients and the reasons for this. So I know you touched briefly on training uh, women and slightly more volume is there anything else that you do on top of just slightly more volume or as you said you have a system within your workouts to be able to push it up and down in terms of uh, weight as well with the RPE system don't you yeah I mean I, I mainly do percentages but like like I said before if your program's reactive and um, you don't really need to read all these volumes books on actual hormones and stuff like that because you'll know if you get the best results and you're hitting your PRs, you've worked out any to pay for three to see how they get on. But I think a lot of coaches out there are carving a niche, making things more complicated than they have to be to obviously, you know, to make a unique selling point in being a coach. So I would personally say, yes, there is differences, but your program should be set up in a way where the differences are accounted for by naturally, you know, by 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 by, by being self-regulating anyway, you know. Okay, yeah. makes sense. A similar question from David Sanderson with a slight twist. So, do you take a different approach to training males as opposed to females? And do you think there is a difference in mentality to training between the two? So, in the mental aspect, do you find men and women approach training in a different way? Um. There is some general trends, but they obviously they can overlap, generally speaking, as well. But um, women, not always, but women can be a bit more, you know, like they won't, they won't have as much of an ego and they don't need to try and prove itself somewhere else at the gym. Like if you give them the work, they'll normally do it. But then again, I've had women that went, you know, the outwork mentality as well, where they you know, want to do more than they should as well. But normally women are a little bit more balanced, are willing to listen than a male athlete. So in a way, then we just well signal's gone slightly hmm. it's turned into a robot <laughs> uh, I don't know I think we, have we lost Russ are you still there Russ uh, no. oh, well, no. oh, well that's annoying that is annoying. Um, so we only have one question left. Um, uh, an app was it an app and date to me? So no heavy lifting for a few weeks. Recommend any exercises that don't involve using a core. I think. I mean straight away that's not. Oh, hey, Rusty back. Sorry, we lost you there. So I think we we got hold of you. Uh, you you're talking about women kind of are a bit more open to perhaps more um, coaching. They're more you, coachable. More coachable. I think we got yeah. to before you went robotic. Yeah, I think that's about it, really, to be honest. So, give me the next question if you want. Yeah. I think that's a general rule of thumb that I find with, depend, well, 
from low level right up to the, the kind of the higher level it's one of the reasons why when i used to work in a gym i found i gravitated towards training more women just because the guys that were on the gym floor they had a little bit more of an ego and i almost had to sell them into my program whereas a lot of if i approached a girl because she had uh, poor technique and i corrected that she was more willing to kind of like want to learn more and it's you have less barriers to kind of break down now i've moved to more online training i'm attracting more men but it's men coming in with that coachable mentality so i think you're, you're completely right it depends on and it's not gender specific so i'm not like assigning gender roles there like at all it's just as you said as a general rule of thumb men tend to have a little bit more of an ego and you tend to have to break down those barriers a little bit more and almost let them make their own mistakes and then come and help them after they've made the mistake. Whereas if you're working with a female client, you might be able to tell them ahead of time that if you do that, then this is going to happen. So I probably wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. Right. Last question. In, in general, oh, sorry. I can say uh, in general, I find men... He's going again. I will have to say bye to rest of the Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think basically we're saying women are better than men. Everyone should be more like women. Go women. <laughs> yeah, be coachable. Um, if you want to improve and you hire a coach, listen to what they're saying. There's a reason why you're paying them. Um, he's back now. So, yeah, last question. Recent appendectomy, so no heavy lifting for a few weeks. Recommend uh, any exercises, preferably home gym-based, that don't involve using the core. Um, would you guys uh, on this one? Nope, not touching that. <laughs> like, I think we do. Is it, that, that's quite a specific problem. You know, you've had your appendix out. That's quite a big deal. Um, it's, everything uses the core. It, it, you know, you know, it's it's hard to define the core, but you know, there's gonna it's gonna be under some strain. With that, purely go uh, with the advice of your doctor or who are your physio, whoever you're working with. You'll know what feels right and what doesn't um, with your own body. It'll be hard for us. If we were going to make a, a judgment, it would be purely from trial and error. So you could try things like, you know, first thing that comes to mind is maybe try a floor press, but then is getting up off the floor press going to cause problems? So I mean, yeah. it's a very, you know, it's not something I've encountered professionally. Um, so it's kind of something you'll have to work out yourself. But yeah, I mean, I'm not really comfortable answering that, I guess, is the answer. Well, Chris is actually one of my clients, so I'm going through his programming after we've kind of finished recording. Oh. Um, so it's, as you said, most exercises use the core. So it's going to be making sure it's very, very stable. We're going to be working very, very light to start off with. A lot of like band work and stuff. Um, and then it's going to be general activity. We're more going to be trying to... Uh, prevent muscle wastage rather than trying to push on with strength gains and focusing on basically a recomposition phase. So it's going to be more gentle cardio, steps, walking, getting on the bike and things like that. Controlling our diet to bring kind of body fat levels down and then slowly reintroducing exercise as we feel stronger. And like you said, it's going to be a lot of trial and error. And if anything hurts, stop doing it straight away. Cool.
Awesome. Cool. Right. Well, it's been amazing to have a chat to you today, Russell. So for all the listeners, uh, where can they find you? What's your Instagram handle? Where are you on Facebook? If they want to hear more of kind of like what you have to say. Um, well, my Instagram is taylor.physiques. I'm, I'm just Russell Taylor on Instagram, really. So I'm not really pushing anything at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah, it's been great to uh, talk shop. I'll definitely be giving you a follow and following your work and looking forward to watching you work your way back up to the World uh, Championships next year. Uh, as always, guys, thank you for listening. If um, you have listened all the way through to the end, if you could go to your respective podcasting platforms and drop us a five-star review, um, it means that we will uh, be able to reach more people and we very, very much appreciate that. Um, anything to say before you go, Dan? No, just cheers, Russ. Uh, we've, we've chatted many times over social media, but never uh, in face-to-face. So we'll computer to computer. So good to hear from you, mate. And I'll keep in touch. Awesome. Right. 